Good morning, church. Good morning. So glad to have you with us. And as Nicole said, if this is your first time in church or your first time in a long time, we're glad that you're here with us. We want you to take a deep breath, uh, relax, know that we don't want anything from you today, uh, but we do want something for you. We want you to know the love and comfort and grace that comes from worshiping Jesus Christ as Savior. Is that an amen, church? Amen. Amen. And as she said, if you have your Bibles or your app, you can open or scroll to Isaiah chapter 3. You'll find that in the Old Testament. Uh, If you open up your Bible about halfway, you might get close to it, left or right, a few pages. We're going to be in chapter 3 and 4. We're in a series in the book of Isaiah. Pastor Jeff has given us the first two messages, and Isaiah is a prophet of God. Now, for bonus Bible points, anybody tell me what a prophet does? They prophesize. That's an easy one, right? I was like, that's no, no trick questions today, I promise. Uh, I'll give you a simple definition I've used for a very long time. Here's what a prophet's job description is. He, uh, he or she uh, tells God's truth to God's people with God's authority. A prophet tells God's truth to God's people with God's authority. And so that was Isaiah's job. And what we have collected for us in the contents of this book is the record of his message to the people of Uh, Jerusalem and Judea and the nation of Israel. The content contains promises and prophecies that focus on his ministry in Jerusalem prior to the exile and judgment of God's people. So that's chapters like 1 through 39. Then it contains prophecies and promises for the people of God while they are in exile. That would be uh, chapters 40 to 55. And then the prophecies and promises for the God's people as they return from exile will be found in 50, chapter 56 through 66. That's the content of the book of Isaiah in a quick snapshot. The context for us today is chapters 3 and 4. And in chapter 3 and 4, we have a prophetic promise of God of the coming Assyrian invasion and judgment of God's people. The Assyrian Empire will be an instrument of God's judgment And we'll also see contained in our chapters today the future hope that can be found in the Messiah. See, in the midst of all of this Old Testament promises and promises that were uh, fulfilled by God in the midst and context of history, the book of Isaiah also has promises that pertain to the Messiah, to Jesus, and the future day of hope that all those who are in Christ will have. So now that I've given you plenty of time to find Isaiah 3, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of the Word. Uh, This is something we do, not just because sitting is the new smoking, uh, but also because as Christians, we believe that the Word of God has power, that when we open the Word of God and the Spirit applies its truth to our lives, we will be transformed. And so that's why the text of God, the Word of God, the preaching of God's Word gets a preeminent place in our service. It gets our attention, and so we stand up to say and declare together, this is the Word of God. We ask that our minds would be clear, our hearts would be ready, and that ultimately would result in our lives being transformed. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with a clear mind, a ready heart, and a willing spirit, would you hear the word of the Lord? I'm just going to read the first part of chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Every one his fellow and every one his neighbor, the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. This is the word of the Lord Church. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, I just confess my need and dependence upon you this morning that I might deliver your word carefully and clearly to your people. 
God, forgive me for the places where uh, in my flesh I have grown weary and weak. Would you allow us collectively, God, to receive from you together? Would you remove the distractions that seem so easily, God, to move our thoughts and our hearts away from you? Holy Spirit, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give to us? And what we are not, would you make us in this place? Ultimately, for your glory, God, we keep none for ourselves. And for the good of your people, we pray through Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have the app, again, you can open up uh, the notes section and you can kind of follow along uh, for the, with the slides. If you like to handwrite notes, like me, if you're kicking it old school this morning, uh, here's my big idea. God will remove anything. God will remove anything that stands between himself and his people, even their own pride and possessions. Even their own pride and possessions. Bible teacher and commentator, when discussing this chapter, Ray Ortland says this, and it just smacked me square in the face this week. It says, God's work is both terrible and beautiful. He leads us into loss in order to enrich us with lasting gain. And what we have collected here in Isaiah 3 and 4 is just that work of God. He is leading the people of Judah and Jerusalem, its capital city, into loss in order that they might once again experience what is lasting gain. C.S. Lewis was a Christian author, and he wrote a collection of fantasy novels. You might be familiar with them, uh, The Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe, and others. Uh, in, in the context of one of the collection of books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet Eustace. Eustace is a selfish, greedy, willfully prideful little young man. And on the course of the adventure, he comes across a treasure and claims it for himself. Takes on these fine gold bracelets and clamps them onto himself. But as this is a fantasy novel, Eustace's pleasure becomes his prison. And he's turned into a dragon full of scales. And his only rescue might be that of Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. Once Eustace recognizes that he's become an awful, wicked, terrible dragon, he tries to claw away the skin himself and ends up peeling layer after layer, but to his demise and despair, he cannot remove the wickedness from himself. Lewis Lewis records Aslan working for Eustace and removing the dragon skin this way. It says, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And here I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. 
Eustace experiences the terrible and beautiful work of God. The stripping away of those things of our old nature that he might receive again new clothes, a new identity. What God is doing here in Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah 3 and 4 is removing all that withstands between himself and his people. Sometimes this work of God requires a spiritual sledgehammer, easily destroying identifiable idols that are external to our soul, things that we can easily point to that say that do not belong to God. But other times, God's work of removing things that withstand between himself and us requires a spiritual scalpel. This is the moment when God removes our internal pride, those things that are connected deeply into our soul. We'll read the work of God in the nation of Judah and Jerusalem and and pray we might find something that God might remove from us today. Let's begin. Isaiah 3.1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. What God does here in the opening verses of chapter 3 through the prophet Isaiah is list out the things that he's going to remove from the nation of Judah in the capital city of Jerusalem. And the first thing we're told is that he's going to remove bread and water from the people. He's going to remove the sustainment of provision. He's going to remove their food supply. Their water source is going to dry up. Their gardens are going to dry out. There will be a lack of food and provision for the people of God here in Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2 records the mighty man and the soldier. The physical forces of protection are going to be removed by God. Verse 2 continues, the judge and the prophet, the instruments of justice and peacekeeping are going to be removed from the people of God. The diviner and the elder, verse 3, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, leadership is going to be removed from the people of God here. One way God judges his people is to deprive them of worthy leaders. When there is a vacuum of leadership among the people of God, the center gives way and it does not hold together. This is a picture of what we're going to see happen throughout this chapter, particularly in the first 15 verses. This would cause us to recognize that if there are trustworthy leaders among us, they are a gift from God. That God is responsible for identifying and ordaining leaders. Our, church is, our job as the church is just to simply re- recognize what God is doing in our midst. For the people of Judah, particularly in the city of Jerusalem, these leaders would be removed. What we're seeing here in chapter 3 is the hand of God's providential grace. That means his, his grace that would provide to meet the needs of his people. God is removing. He's removing his hand of restraint. He's removing his hand of blessing. This is a vivid and stark, bleak, black and white picture of a life lived outside the blessing of God. This passage should give us pause to consider our lives for a moment as we see what life outside the blessing of God really looks like. It should produce in us as Christians a gratitude for Christ, knowing that the hand of blessing has been permanently placed upon us through the righteousness, not of our own account, but of our Savior Jesus. Jesus has ensured that those who are in his name, in his identity, will never suffer the things we read here. That the hand of blessing of God will be upon us. That Ephesians tells us in chapter 1 that we have received in Christ every spiritual blessing. As we examine our lives, we should be full of gratitude for Jesus. 
Additionally, it should produce a trepidation and somberness over any willful and ongoing disobedient sin in our life. We should be very careful and very sober about the places and pieces of our life where we are willfully disobeying God. Knowing that our Heavenly Father will not hesitate to discipline us, not for punishment, but out of love to restore us back to Himself. That's what all of this is in Isaiah 3. It's not God coming to punish His people. He's coming to purify them. He's coming to, to cut away any part that does not line up with his character and call upon their life. And so he's removing the things, anything that would stand in between himself and them. Verse 4, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one of his fellow and every one of his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and, despi- and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. There is a desperate search for qualified leadership among God's people as a result of God's discipline. I mean, they're desperate, right? What becomes the qualifications of character? Hey, you got a jacket? You're in charge. The standard becomes low, and the quality of life of the people, suddenly leadership does not become something that is full of recognition and prize and reward. No, no, you're going to have to lead a people that have been oppressed and destroyed by an enemy empire, and so nobody wants that job. Listen, I don't have a jacket, I don't have a snack at my house, I am not qualified to lead. The people become desperate, searching for qualified leadership under God's discipline. Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. We find evidence for God's judgment upon his people here in verse 8. What's gone on among the people? Why is God removing their bread and water? Why is he removing their leadership? Why is he casting discipline and judgment upon them through the Assyrian Empire? This is why. Because they've stumbled and they've fallen. What have they stumbled from? And what have they fallen from? The beautiful and glorious standard that God called the nation of Israel to be. The nation of Israel was never supposed to be an inclusive club. The nation of Israel was always supposed to be a ray of light for hope to the world. The nation of Israel's purpose was to serve as an example of what it meant to live a life governed by God so that all other people might recognize what a beautiful and blessing it would be to live under the sovereign providential governing and leadership of the God of creation. Israel stumbled and fallen from that great call. They've turned away from it. Both in their speech and in their deeds, They are behaving against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Verse 9, for the look on their face bears witness against them. If you're a parent of a teenager, you know exactly what this verse means. All right? We've got a 12-year-old son. He'll be 13 in May. There are moments, there are moments when the look on his face, I, I just, I have to put my hands in my pockets for fear of putting them on him. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, dude. 
What's the problem? Not just that they've stumbled and fallen. God is a gracious God, slow to anger, steadfast in mercy. What's their problem? They've stumbled and fallen and have remained purposefully there in that place. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They are against the Lord. They proclaim their sin like Sodom and they willfully celebrate their disobedience and defiance of God. They do not hide it, verse 9 records. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Again, God is not a capricious God standing over them with a a clipboard and a ruler waiting to strike down like some wicked substitute teacher. These people have willfully, continually disobeyed God and ignored the warnings that God has sent them. Ignoring the word, the law of God. Ignoring the leadership of God, the prophets and, those, and the messengers of God are sent to rebuke them and call them back. They have willfully walked in this direction of the place where after God's slow patience, he must purify and judge them. What God is going to do in the soundbite is he's going to remove the things that the people of God prop themselves up with. Those things that they rely upon for themselves that are not God. And so God's going to remove them. He's going to remove those things that they prop themselves up with. Their their food and water supply, their their leaders, their their comfort, their, their lifestyle. God's going to take away all of that so they are left with nothing but to look up and come face to face with him. Because they've been willfully walking in disobedience with their backs toward him. So God's going to course correct and say, no, no, we're going to do this face to face. Verse 10 provides an interesting ray of hope. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Even in the midst of judgment, we see God's mercy and blessing and grace to preserve a people even in the midst of the wickedness. The whole of Jerusalem, the whole of Judah has not turned away from God. There is a righteous remnant, and God promises that in the midst of his judgment upon the wicked, he will persevere his people who have followed him in obedience. And then verse 11 serves as the opposite promise. Woe to the wicked, for it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. There's a couple of things I want to point out here. One is the juxtaposition between the wicked and the righteous. This is a, what we'll call a longitudinal theme in Scripture. What does that mean? It means it's a theme that runs from generation, Genesis to Revelation. That's what I did there. Combined Genesis and Revelation. That became generation. Isn't that neat? That's what happens when you hit the donut bar before you preach. It's like, Sugar! This longitudinal theme of the righteous and the wicked is woven throughout the scripture. Which means as, the, as the wicked are judged by God, the righteous are preserved by God, culminating in the final day of judgment and when God will deal with the wicked ultimately and he will deal with the righteous ultimately. And so in one sense, as we read Isaiah 3 and 4, we're not reading a unique act of God. We're just reading what God has always done, is doing, and will always do. Something else I want us to see. We can have faith in the justice of God. That we can have faith in the justice of God. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the nation of Judah, in the capital city of Jerusalem, to try to walk righteously before God when all your neighbors didn't? When, when you had to stand out solely as you were the only one on your way to temple to worship God, while your neighbors went to worship idols. 
Imagine maybe how alone you felt. Imagine how you might have had to suffer at the hands of your wicked neighbor who, without any moral or ethics or the law to guide him, is only guided by his selfish, sinful appetites. Can you imagine the wounding and the wickedness you might have had to suffer? And then can you imagine kind of the righteous indignation time after time after you suffer at the hands of the wicked might rise up in you and you might decide, you know what, I need to do something about this. God, where are you at? Can't you see that I'm suffering? Can't you see that wicked people are doing wicked things to me? Can, can, can you identify with that thought? I want you to, to see that we can have faith in the justice of God in verse 11. For it shall be ill with him, that is to the wicked, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. That is, those things that the wicked have done, they will now endure. How beautifully ironic God's justice is. I'm not sure what you've imagined doing to those people who've done wicked things to you. But I can assure you, God has it covered. However wicked you have suffered at their hands, they will suffer one day under the justice of God. We can trust Him in that moment. We don't have to be our own protectors. Verse 12. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people or by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. God, in verses, where are we at? Uh, 12 through 15, we're looking at God's indictment of the leadership. This is who he's going to contend with. The people have grown wicked. Why? Because the leadership has grown lazy. The people have grown wicked because the leaders have grown lazy. The leadership neglect, we're told, and they crush the poor. They have not subscribed to the godly pyramid of leadership, which is inverted. That is, power at this, at, is at the bottom and authority is at the bottom, used to serve at the top. The worldly pyramid looks the other way. Power is at the top and it's used to oppress the bottom. This is the leadership pyramid that the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem have subscribed to. They have used their position and posture to abuse the poor. Rather than leading to enrich the lives of others, these leaders exploit those under their influence. The kingdom of God should be the place where the lowly and the broken and the poor should come and thrive. Here in the church is where those oppressed would find relief, affection, and hospitality. But the leadership of Jerusalem in this day used their posture and position to oppress them. May the Lord forgive us for the places where we, like the elders of Jerusalem, neglect the poor and broken in our midst. God's indictment begins with the leadership of Jerusalem. So much so that the, those leaders who've been wicked will be removed and in their place, we're told, will be infants and women. And again, in, in an Old Testament cultural context, what does what God is saying? There will be no men who are fit to lead. Verse 16. God turns his judgment from leadership to culture. Verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty 
and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. In chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 1, God is describing the women of the culture in Judah and what they will lose as a result of God's judgment. If one way that we've read is that God judges his people by removing leadership, another way God judges his people is to replace their arrogance with what they dread. And so if the people have grown spiritually and internally willful and prideful, it is seen physically in the exterior of how the women have addressed themselves. Not with humility and meekness and generosity and kindness and love and respect as described in passages like Ephesians 5 and Titus 2 and Proverbs 31, the women of godly character. And these women have reverted the other way. They've embraced the worldview that beauty is king, that wealth is rule, that power is right. And so God, I want you to look at the detail in terms of what God is going to remove in verse 18 through 22. I mean, God's going through their walk-in closet here and just throwing stuff out, right? This is a spiritual spring cleaning. He's going to remove all of the things that they use to adorn themselves, to present themselves as desirable creatures. God is describing here his people's capture their exile, and their abuse. Why? Because the people have lived with a complete anti-God state of mind. They've become puffed up and prideful. Verse 24, God is going to remove and now replace. Verse 24, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, Baldness. Don't giggle at that. Do not giggle at that. Okay? Keep it in context, people. Verse 24. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. This is a detailed description of what the Assyrian Empire will come in and do. Again, the wealth, the riches, the beauty, the, those things that the women of Zion have um, puffed themselves up with, all of that is going to be stripped away and taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. And then the fine clothes that they would wear, the rich robes will be replaced with the sackcloth robe of a slave. The fine belts used to hold their garments will be replaced with a rope as they're enslaved. Instead of their well-set, beautiful hair, they'll have their heads shaved. Instead of their skin marked with makeup and cosmetics, they'll be marked with a brand of the Assyrian Empire, treated like a possession rather than people. Verse 25, Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. The women are not the only ones who will receive capture and captivity, but the men will be killed by the sword and your mighty men in battle. 
Again, this is a military action by the Assyrian Empire. So what do they do? They come in, they capture the women and children, and they murder the men. Why? Because that's how you get rid of an opposing enemy's army. Verse 26 describes the city itself. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and empty she shall sit on the ground. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We shall eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. That is, remove our shame. There will be such a lack of, of, of men in the community of Israel, among the people of God, that seven women will pursue one man, and they'll pursue him in marriage, promising, listen, you don't have to clothe us, you don't have to feed us, just give us your last name so we don't have to be left in our own shame and isolation. The life outside the blessing and providence God is one of desperation. Cities and churches will rise and fall on the conduct of their leaders and people. Cities and churches will fall and rise on the conduct of their leaders and people. And what we're reading here is the fall of Jerusalem and Judah because of their leaders and people. God was no longer their prized possession. Children of God no longer their prized identity. And so God in his just judgment of them is removing anything that would withstand between them. He's removed their pride. He's removed their self-reliance. Begs the question for us, perhaps this week, what losses must we suffer that we would treasure Jesus as our only true gain? What losses must we suffer that we would treasure Jesus as our only true gain. And again, for those of you who are in Christ this morning, if there are things that become possessive idols for you, things that you begin to trust in other than God, those are the things that God is, is forgive the word, but pestering you about, wholly disturbing you about. Hey, this doesn't fit. Hey, this is incongruent. Hey, this doesn't line up with who you are and who I've called you to be. Hey, this thing, it needs to be removed. Hey, this thing, it has no power over you. You are freed from it. Stop putting the shackles back on. They're broken. And again, God is slow to anger. Bounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so he will pester about you. But there will become a time where he will strip that thing from you. As he does here in Judah and Jerusalem. And so those losses that we must suffer, they can be things that we give up ourselves in an act of repentance and worship of God. Or they can be things that God slowly strips away from us. But ultimately, what God is doing is he wants to place Jesus as our only true gain, the centerpiece of our soul, if you will. And so if you're in the midst of suffering loss right now, perhaps anger and frustration with God is not the right posture and attitude, but perhaps you need to reexamine it and say, God, thank you for removing anything that would withstand between me and you. God, forgive me for allowing this thing to take a place in my life where it does not belong. Forgive me and give me the strength to release it, to let it go, to reject it for what it is. 
and to see Jesus for who he truly is. On the prayer list, uh, a few weeks ago, I asked you to pray for my dad. Uh, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer a few weeks ago. And uh, we as a family, are, 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 we're right in the middle of this. We're right in the midst of asking ourselves, is Jesus our one true gain? That we might watch my dad suffer loss, the loss of his health. Can we trust God to strip that away from my father? Believing that Jesus is his true gain. Can we endure that? What losses must we suffer that we would treasure Jesus as our only gain? Even our physical well-being and our health can be an idol that we prize and lift up too high. We forget. We forget. Here's a neat thing that God does, though. Jesus replaces false beauty with true desirability. Look at verse 2 in chapter 4. In that day, in what day? In the day of judgment, in the day when everything is stripped away. Guess what happens? The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. If you're in your Bibles, underline that or in your app, highlight it. That is a reference to straight up Jesus. Jesus is the branch of David. Jesus is the branch of the Lord. So even here in the midst of judgment and having everything torn away, all of their pride, all of their possessions, anything they could stand on for any kind of withstanding and identity in the community, all of that is being stripped away. All they are left with is what? The branch of the Lord, the beautiful and glorious Messiah is theirs that they might treasure him above all the things that they've lost. Even in the midst of captivity and exile, God does not leave his people without hope. Amen? Even in the midst of stripping everything away, God does not leave us without beauty and glory. Because in that day, the day of the Lord here, Jesus will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. The prophet looks beyond the day of judgment here in chapter 4, not leaving the people downtrodden with their faces in ash. He looks to the day when the kingdom will be established on earth. This isn't just the day of judgment. This is the day of recreation that Isaiah is describing here. The branch of the Lord, as I already said, is the title for Jesus. One of the benefits of of God's judgment is that there is a cleansing of his people. This is chapter 4, verse 4. There is a refinement that comes from the benefit of judgment. When God disciplines his people, it is for the refinement and purity. 
And one of the beautiful blessings of this time in the nation of Israel and Judah's history is that they will be purified so that those who are walking with God will remain. God promises here to restore the fruitfulness of the land. The very first thing he promised to take away, right? Their own personal bread and water supply is now here restored to the place that it becomes the the point of their pride and glory. That there will be such sustainment and provision in Christ that it will broadcast to all of creation. And that God himself will dwell with them as he did in the wilderness when he brought them out of captivity in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Soon there will be a time in the day of the Lord when not just the temple, but every dwelling place would be blessed by the presence of the Lord. And that day people will be holy. They will be set apart by God. And the land will be beautiful and glorious. You see, God is moving us, his people, toward a time where his glorious presence covers us all. Where he will be our shade from the heat of judgment. And he will be our refuge and shelter from the storm. I'll close with Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. People of God are suffering in chapter 3. But those sufferings at the hand of the judgment and justice of God pale to compare with the glory that awaits them in Christ. This morning, if you find yourself suffering under judgment or your own sin, and you seek relief, there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. Number one, you must believe that you are unable to save and rescue yourself. That like Eustace from the story at the beginning, you cannot claw and scratch away your need, but that God must strip you of your spiritual death that you must turn from your sin and wickedness and self-reliance. If believing this, the second thing you must believe is that Jesus is enough. That his life, death, and resurrection are the means by which God will rescue you and save you. And if you will believe in his name and confess that he is the risen Savior, you will be saved. If believing these two things, you're ready. The last thing you must do, you must dedicate your life to him. You must give your whole self over to him. Bible uses different language across the scripture to describe this, but it, it is clear it is a willful choice on our behalf to obey the call of God. Yes. Having believed these two things and ready to do this final thing, the glory that awaits you will be amazing. Let me pray for you, church. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being gathered with your people. God, I thank you that sometimes your word is sobering and that we need it. We need to remember who is God and who is not. And so God, for those in this room who need that reminder this morning, I pray that they would be comforted by your mercy and they would worship you because of your justice. God, for those of us who have known you a long time, who've walked with you, Father, would you forgive us for the places that we have gone willfully in disobedience to what we know better? Would you grant us the courage and the strength to reject anything that stands between us, knowing that you are infinitely more desirable, infinitely more beautiful than anything this world has to offer us? 
God, as we move into our time of worship, would you bless our offering? Would you be present in our communion with you? The sound of our voices lifting up your name be pleasing. Would our fellowship together bring a joy that we cannot find without? We love you, God. We thank you for this day, for this time, and above all, for our Savior Jesus. To your glory and the good of your people, I pray. Amen.